Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Famed for his caustic exploration of contemporary social issues through the horror genre, writer and director Jordan Peele is back with another ambitious and eerie cinematic extravaganza. Nope, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer and Stephen Yuen, takes the plot of the classic monster movie. A group of good guys trying to take down an ominous monster, but reimagines it for our present day. Horse Wrangler siblings OJ and Emerald Hayward, played by Kaluuya and Palmer, begin to see a strange object lurking over their ranch, which they believe might have had a hand in the death of their father. In Peel's reimagining, rather than trying to kill the beast, they attempt to get photographic evidence of this otherworldly being. The vast California hills provide the sweeping backdrop for the uncanny events that take place, where at the heart of the film lies a meditation on the idea of spectacle and the meaning of cinema itself. There's a UFO, the creepy theme park called Jupiter's Claim, and the presence of an incredibly unnerving chimpanzee. But does Nope live up to the incredibly high reputation Peel has already established? Well, joining me today to see whether Nope gets a yep from us is the film critic, writer and broadcaster Leila Latif, and by the film critic for The Telegraph, Tim Roby. Let's start off, though, by hearing a bit of the trailer. Something above the clouds. That's big. How big? Big. You think whatever killed Pops is out there? Right here, you are going to witness an absolute spectacle. So what happens next? Are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay. That was the stagey and exciting trailer for Nope, which we're talking about, as advertised, with Leila Latif and Tim Roby. Welcome both to the programme. And welcome, Leila. First time caller. Yeah. Long, long time, time listener. Long time. <laughs> we'll put that in later. Dreams Who do knows? Come true. They can come <laughs> true. So that was a trailer that was speaking to the heart of what Nope is, I suppose. Big? How big? You're going to see some kind of a spectacle. How big, Leila? Is nope. I mean, you can definitely see the budget and where it went. This is kind of Jordan Peele much more in like blockbuster mode. Mm. And, you know, he's someone a bit like a Quentin Tarantino, that he's like a real cinephile. You can tell that he is someone that has spent his entire life consuming films. And that's very obvious with what he puts on screen. So I'd kind of like to think that if like Get Out was kind of his love letter to Ira Levin, Stepford Wives and... <laughs> You know, Us is his love letter to Hitchcock. This is his love letter to early Spielberg. And it's got that great, classic, exciting, big scale, terrifying blockbuster that, you know, I always love. So there's some thrills and spills, almost said pills. (laughs) That's an album. That's different. That's for a different programme, isn't it? Tim's nodding along anyway. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Leila says this is a blockbuster. Now, I wonder if this is technically a blockbuster or if this is a sort of arch take on a blockbuster. It's both, isn't it? It's a kind of tease 
about blockbusters. And I, I like the whole tease of the film, which has also been true of the marketing, the kind of mystery of it. Mm -hmm. Like, what is this film? They've kept the cards very close to their chest until the one trailer that dropped and everyone kind of went, oh, there's kind of UFOs in there. Okay, fine, we, we now have a handle on it. But I like that the tease of it still continues as you watch the film. The very first scene will be completely bewildering to anyone who thinks they've got a handle on this film. Yeah. It involves a chimpanzee. That's all I'll say. It's extremely sophisticated, this film, and it's very mysterious in its kind of structure. You're kind of like, what, 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 what are we doing here exactly? We are venturing into blockbuster terrain. We are doing a kind of almost like a variation on, on Jaws, as we'll come back to later. Yeah. But we're also playing a lot of games with the themes of film history and the idea of film as spectacle and the idea of audiences kind of want, racing after the spectacle, hungry for it, and becoming almost idiots yeah. uh, in our desire to hoover it up, to kind of like, you know, to, we're hungry for it. But it comes back after you in this film, and that's the thing that I really like about it. It's it, there's, there's a kind of nastiness to this film. It almost feels at times like a kind of revenge on audience stupidity, uh, which is <laughs> kind of cool. Well, maybe there's something about it that we might talk about this later as well, where it's a sort of exploitation film, and maybe it's at the expense of the audience as much as any of the characters or themes in the film itself. But thanks for queuing up the idea that it's a film about filmmaking, as Layla was kind of referring to in Jordan Peele's kind of other two features as well. So what are the themes? How is this a film about filmmaking? What are the things that we see on screen that kind of even without being a film buff kind of hit us between the eyes as something we've seen somewhere before. Hang on, we've seen something like this somewhere before. There's kind of two characters that are played by Michael Wincott and I believe he's called Angel, a kind of tech bro. Well, not a tech bro. Angel, yeah, Brandon Perea. Brandon yeah. Perea that kind of like typify those like two different um, generations of like pursuit of spectacle where you've kind of got Michael <laughs> Wincott who's got that like fabulous... Ford Coppola, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, like, desire at any expense, we must kind of get this incredible shot. And, and he's called, Ant the character is Antlers Holst. Antlers Holst, which is the coolest Looks name. Looks quite good in I've a skirt, ever... doesn't he? He's got a kind of Alexander McQueen's kind of skirt on, he's looking good. And I liked the little impression you did because of Michael Wincott with the most gravelly voice in all of cinema. Get you can't shot. get more oh, gravelly than yeah. Michael Wincott. Oh, my goodness. The fact that Jordan Peele had the audacity to put Keith David's voice and Michael Wincott's voice in one film, it will make me kind of grateful for the rest of my life. Really testing the extreme bass range of Dolby 7.1. That's what it was invented for, <laughs> gravel. Yeah, that kind of Michael Wincott character then kind of meeting like the new generation of filmmaker that, you know, Angel in some ways typifies of like kind of, oh, we're kind of doing this for content and like there's a little bit of like online social media desperately wanting to kind of get engagement and views and stuff. And like, there's I a love nice joke about TM which we won't spoil, yeah. but crops up. But I love that thing about kind of, you know, maybe ever since cinemas existed, we've always been in pursuit of spectacle and like that, the way that manifests across all of these different characters. And I would say also with Duke Park, you know, the former child star and you know what he's trying to pursue is also essentially the same thing. But yeah, all from very different angles. And we start off after our strange sort of, yeah, same prologue with the chimp pretty much at the start of the film anyway, on a film set, on a film lot, in a production, green screen, there's a horse, 
and we see Edward Mybridge's kind of, I mean, going right back to the earliest. Is this, is this the earliest thing that was ever filmed or the earliest motion picture that was ever filmed? That's right, yeah, yeah that, that kind of famous image of the, of the horse. And yeah. it's pointed out that the rider of the horse was Af- African-American exactly. was African American, and is therefore kind of really the first ever film star. And our two main characters here are the descendants of that, that guy, the characters played by Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer, brother and sister. Their dad, the Keith David character, has just very recently died leaving them to kind of run the ranch, if you like, and to become the animal handlers who are working this Hollywood business. That's the rough setup. Except that Daniel Kaluuya is the only one on set in that first scene. His sister's late. He doesn't really know how to do it all on his own. And he also just seems deeply depressed. And I think this is also a film about depression, really, because it's about kind of like the clouds hanging over you and there's nothing you can do to kind of shift them. You nervously look up. Daniel Kaluuya gives an incredibly understated performance in that mode. It's his most kind of tamped down performance, but I really like him in it. And Kiki Palmer is a real contrast. She's such a live wire in this film. She's There's so much energy coming off her. She's the kind of ambitious one. She's got hopes and dreams. She's kind of constantly on the make. She's got a hustle everywhere. And so there's kind of quite a lot of tension between them as, as siblings for that reason, which I think gives the film enough an emotional core that yeah. it doesn't really doesn't feel just like it's kind of bit playing gimmicky games with with film history or whatever, which it could have done. There is some kind of emotional glue there between them. I slightly wondered on that front whether they had enough glue there. They felt slightly like two people that wandered in slightly from different films, but I don't know. I'm not the expert, Leila. <laughs> I wonder whether that was the bit, the, their characters, I wondered how whether I needed a bit more. Yeah, I suppose with Jordan Peele, there is a temptation to like really, really overthink everything. But, you know, I've I've been a fan of his for a really long time back into his comedy days. And he was part of a duo called Key and Peele. And they had that very, very similar dynamic. Like Jordan Peele was kind of low energy, slow-mo one. And then Keegan-Michael Key was just this like live wire charisma, you know, high kicks and kind of always in an 11. I saw that (laughs) dynamic in them, which was very like heartwarming to me, that like little garth Field and Odie, I'd like to describe it. <laughs> I like that. That's a reference. I mean, they, don't, that. they don't really understand each other at the beginning. Yeah. They're, they're kind of semi-estranged. Yeah. She's not really been on the ranch helping out. She's kind of been off doing her own thing. There's a lot to repair in their relationship, mm. I guess. And they go about doing that while chasing UFOs <laughs> around the skies, which is quite a strange <laughs> way of doing it. But, but they kind of queue up some very, very good records on their very, very auspiciously vintage, nice hi-fi system. In this house as well, in terms of locations, let's talk about locations. So this house feels like it was lifted from at least a dozen other horror movies rather than sci-fi movies. Maybe they are sci-fi movies. There seems to be callbacks there. What about the location? So this is shot on the outskirts of Hollywood. It's dusty, dry. It's the Santa Catalina Valley, I think, is it? So it's super dry. Talking about Spielberg, this feels like where Jewel was shot, right? It's very first feature, driving through these dusty canyons and places like this. What does that say? Is that just a kind of blank canvas, that location? or Because these guys, are the they run a stud, a horse stud, right? But it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's kind of next to Hollywood. What is there anything we can read into the location other than it's a nice backdrop to see some UFOs darting around in the sky? Peel loves a how that becomes a character in itself. Mm-hmm. I know particularly in like Get Out, he was very inspired by, you know, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining and those kind of monstrous McMansions that populated us on those kind of lakeside mm. vistas kind of spoke to a bit of a societal rot and people that are just kind of given up on what's important in life and it's all about posturing. So I think the isolation of this ranch, particularly within this valley, was really 
part of like the depression element to it and like the weight of what it is to feel like entirely alone. But yeah, I had to take a lot of, I had to trust a lot in Peel with this because it's not a part of the world I really know. But I'm just like, are there ranches in the middle of nowhere with Hollywood horses next to Wild West outer space theme parks <laughs> like what is this place okay i trust him because they reference this in the movie don't they? they say it's very difficult to find you on google maps yeah and i kind of like that the, the lack the fact that it is in a sort of bermuda triangle of reality but next that, to a str- so it's peel's imagination I yeah suppose. but next to a very strange tourist attraction that i could not figure out the business plan of but i had to like <laughs> uh, you know layla's here with a spreadsheet wondering how it all fits together yeah. Maybe, okay. maybe it works with the kind of metaphor of the movie that the excluded, marginalised character who really ought to have more of a stake in the business are the, this brother and sister. And they're on the fringes of this weird attraction, the circus that Stephen Yun's character has set up, which is bringing in the dollar. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're sort of on the edge of it and their horses are being sold into it for reasons they don't really understand that we don't either until later on. That all feeds in. So you could sort of see it as a bit like imagining the beginnings of Hollywood. The Hollywood, you know, obviously was built on yeah. nothing as well. It was built in a desert, essentially, a bit like Vegas. Maybe it's that's the idea. He sort of abstracted it and just moved it just slightly down the road. And uh, Rick Jupe Park, who obviously has a very close connection to this opening kind of scene and with, with the chimpanzee, as we'll find in the film. I guess he's a snake oil salesman. He's an old-fashioned kind of... He's a sort of pre-talkies kind of rabble-rousing... He's part of a travelling circus almost, the setup is kind of, you know, it's knockabout, it's travelling circus. It's that got that kind of vibe as well. And I guess his sort of, the fakeness of everything that happens on that thing is, we see it as ironic, but you wonder how the people that turn up to it as this kind of crappy, very local theme park see it, I suppose, as well. How well does this subplot work? Because there's quite a lot in this film with all the Spielberg aspects of it, the sci-fi elements, the kind of horror elements the brother-sister dynamic, all these things going on. Does the subplot, does that feel like a, a sidecar strapped onto a motorbike that didn't quite need it or I what? Mean, I don't I know. I kind of like the idea that it's a sidecar, but I still really value it. <laughs> it's not a drink. You come out of the film slightly wrestling, I think, with how exactly the subplot really intersects with the main plot. I don't know if you agree with that, but I, yeah. I felt there were, there were aspects of it where I was like, how does that exactly work thematically? Because we're dealing with a, an old sitcom called Gordy's Home yeah. uh, involving a chimp and involving Stephen Young's character when he was a young boy mm-hmm. and involving a horrendous, traumatic disaster occurring on the set. It's of that. very frightening. That. Very, 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 mm-hmm. very frightening. <laughs> Probably the scariest sequence that I think Jordan Peele has constructed so far. And it's sort of nested in the middle of the film. And you wouldn't really want to take it out because it is extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is incredible. But it, it kind of like means that there's this the aftermath of that, especially psychologically for Stephen Young's character. And you're, you're sort of wondering about how deeply that trauma runs, and obviously very deeply, and how much the rest of his life is sort of an attempt to paper over the, the cracks of it, is sort of there, and it's right next door to the main plot that's happening. And then there is this one sequence where they, it does really kind of connect properly, which I think is probably closest to the sequence in Jaws on the 4th of July, mm-hmm. when everyone rushes down to the beach, despite the fact there are sharks in the water, and they're having a kind of riotous time, and then everything kicks off, uh, which is sort of the most, in a way, the most misanthropic scene in Jaws. I don't see that as a f- scene from Jaws anymore. I just see that as a Brexit meme on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it sometimes gets called the most like misanthropic scene in Jaws because it's the one where Spielberg is like look at these idiots flocking down they kind of deserve everything they're going to get and there are hints of that in the way that I think Jordan Peele stages this big 
calamity yeah. uh, involving a lot of the the kind of tourists rocking up at the at the, the circus attraction etc but it's also again it yields a really incredible brief but incredible moment up the gullet of a ufo and again i won't say too much more than that but it's it's extraordinary i wasn't expecting it at all I wasn't expecting it that image in this film so yeah, yeah. I, I would not want to sacrifice the subplot for anything i think perhaps a few more drafts might have tethered it a little bit more tightly into the main plot but i still yeah. want it there okay i loved it what about you later was that sort of does that feel like a unnecessary add-on no not at all i mean for me he was like an absolute highlight i love it when filmmakers don't feel the need to over explain themselves and you know so much of that character is just said in he is talking about a traumatic event that we at various points get clips you know a few different angles on but the only way he can describe it is describing the snl sketch that was about it and i felt that like in that moment it was like i understood everything about this man i understood his levels of artifice i understood how he couldn't move on and then so much of this comes down to underestimating animals i suppose at many points and you know we see even at the beginning the horse is kind of disrespected when they says don't you know don't make eye contact don't put things in its faces and it freaks out there's the exploitation uh, thing yeah. there as well in that isn't there as well? and you can kind of draw a very easy link to where he really gets it wrong from that original event and then how he has kind of failed to cope with it what about and again we don't want to we don't wanna, we don't want to do any spoilers it's quite difficult but Let's try and do this. Let's try and talk about the UFOs, the aliens, as such as they are. I was quite refreshed to see that we've had a rival. We've had these intelligent ways of making contacts and beautiful ways that people talk in ink. And, you know, it's very subtle and poetic. It's quite nice just to see really sh- nasty aliens that just want to suck you up. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Sort yeah. of devour you. It is, yeah. They're, you know, they're, abduct they're you. Sharks of the skies, if you like. Yeah. And their main <laughs> motive is simply hunger. Uh, which I think is yeah. is frightening. Yeah. And I agree that was refreshing. And it, it gives the film a, a kind of really sort of nasty edge, as I mentioned earlier. It also just lets Jordan Peele just kind of rock out, really, with a third act where he can have people running around the place. But the key thing is they're not running away from the thing, from the threat. They are running towards it very often because the idea of this film is you have to catch it on camera. This is the way we're going to monetize this thing, this spectacle that we've found. No matter how voracious and dangerous the spectacle is, we need to get it on camera. We need to get the shot. Get the and that shot. is what Michael yeah. Wincott's character is all about. He's he's obsessed with getting the shot. He's kind of He's, he's, you know, he's working a kind of late career hacky angle on things. He's massively disillusioned. He sits at home getting drunk while friends are having dinner in his living room. And he's waiting in a way for the phone call of someone saying, we've got this thing in the sky when we need to get the shot of it. It's going to be the hardest shot you'll ever get. It's going to be the best shot you'll ever get. And watching his character kind of spring into action is very exciting. And I, I think it really, it, very clearly, he is the, the Robert Shaw character. He's Quint from Jaws. <laughs> and as soon as I realised that, I kind of realised what the film was going to do with him. You still, it doesn't remove the suspense of it because you know that he's going to kind of lose his mind out there, really, in pursuit of this thing, in pursuit of getting the shot. And he has um, Angel as well as his kind of ally in doing this with all of his new tech. Angel, who seems to be just very bored working in a kind of Circuit City style 
commuter tech shop. He can't shop. wait for the call. To he's come he's in also and... can't wait for the call. He's yeah. like his life is boring and meaningless, and then suddenly he gets the call, and he's like, I'm I'm on board with this, uh, and now now I have something to do in a way. And I was I always really like it when a, when characters in in this kind of blockbuster suddenly have something to do, and they yeah. get, they get excited about being in a blockbuster, no matter how <laughs> no matter how much they're in ter- in mortal terror of dying at any moment. It's still the best thing they've ever done. Uh, kind of like that. <laughs> I love how Peel has this ability to establish exactly who someone is with just like a few moments and with the angel character it was just like works in a technology kind of warehouse girlfriend just got a job on the CW and it's just like cool I completely understand who this guy is uh-huh. I yeah. understand this kind of disillusioned kind of young person where it's not really working out for it so you're spending way too much time on Reddit and like yeah there is a spiral of madness that comes from that <laughs> <laughs> and he's a kind of and also the performances that I mean Brandon Perea who plays Angel he's brilliant isn't he I mean he's kind of he has to toughen up as the movie goes on he has to kind of learn some skills but he's a kind he's just funny and excellent he's a great comedic actor I guess in his first scenes isn't he he's just brilliant I thought he was so great and he's so exactly good. the right actor for the role because you can sense his excitement at being in the yeah. film yeah, yeah, and yeah. again part of them all of the marketing has, has fed into that because he is just like bouncing off the walls with excitement that he's in it that just works for the character so well I thought I think he's brilliant in it yeah tiggerish enthusiasm it's weird because if we're talking about Jaws and, you know, what Richard Dreyfuss' character, which I suppose is the equivalent of Angel in that film. And I mean, that is a, no spoilers, but that is very much referenced several times. So I'm not kind of, you know, coming up with that theory out of nowhere. But it is interesting how kind of like the relationship with someone who's really good at technology has changed and how like back in the 70s when we're talking about Jaws, it's like, oh, that person's a snob. They're an elitist. They come from privilege. And like now it's just like, no, it's just that you're lonely. <laughs> you spend a lot of time tinkering with your machines and actually you don't really feel that you're better than anyone. You're excited to maybe be making some friends. Well, we've mentioned the the elephant in the room then let's let's go there tim we've come to the point in the show we're going to talk about your chosen specialist subjects that remind you of nope now you flagged up jaws we have to go itself we have to go for jaws really or at least one of us did because the whole structure of the film borrows from it the tease of jaws you know the sort of like what is it what's it going to do how many people is it going to take down and how do we get it and what techniques are we going to use to bring it down the shark obviously jaws was like an enormous step up for spielberg in 1975 you could argue Nope is somewhat for Jordan Peele, certainly in terms of the budget, as you were saying. Uh, he'd only done Jewel and the Sugarland Express before, and this was his moment. This was his moment, and this was his moment to prove that he had the chops to make a suspense film and to really, to kind of like very skillfully manipulate an audience with every t- tactic at his disposal. Uh, when when Hitchcock saw the film, when it came out in that summer, he kind of doffed his cap, basically. He said, mm-hmm. that man has a very rare talent. And that was exactly what Spielberg wanted. But Spielberg was so canny when he made it that he was able to... He went and sat and watched the film with an audience many times during the testing process. And he realised when there were lulls and when there were peaks. And he realised there were, there were a couple of too many lulls in there. So he added scenes. You know, He went and shot another scene in his editor's swimming pool with the head down at the bottom of the sea he added that and that goosed the audience that final time in the way that he wanted so his showmanship in that respect was kind of completely uncompromising he was willing to just like work it and go to bat for it Jordan Peele I think now is showing himself to have a lot of that same sophistication I think that you know that this film is edited so craftily it has so many kind of zingy interesting weird moments there's a moment we haven't mentioned where the strange alien heads keep popping out sideways in a barn in a very, very mysterious <laughs> way. And that's when Daniel Kluwer's character just says, nope, nope, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, out yeah. of here. I did too. I hid behind my jumper for yeah. that. That was 
tough. Yeah, <laughs> in- incredibly frightening and sort of a fake out at the same time. It's it, how he did, does that. That's a very Spielberg trick, you know, to kind of like fake you out like that. There are some really wonderful moments also with the hidden camera, the kind of CCTV camera footage in this as well of how they how they play with suspense as well. A side note, someone that was very entertaining to watch this film with was co-producer of the show, Steph. I've never seen anyone wear more jumper on their face than on their body. Steph is currently holding her hand <laughs> over her face in the control booth. On some yeah. of those scenes that you're mentioning, Tim, it was pretty. I kind of it was a bit like Gogglebox. You wanted to watch someone watching the film, you know? It yeah, was exactly. Kind yeah. of a, it was a, it, it was good stuff. But I really like the continuation this film does of like, how do we get them even better now, or like, how yeah. do we lead them to a place where they're going to be even more susceptible to what I now want to spring upon them? Yeah. And then the kind of like the sort of massaging your audience into the right frame of mind for the next shock, the exactly. Next scene change. I mean, yeah. life is a little bit easier for Jordan Peele now because he can create a CG UFO in the sky and hide it behind clouds for most of the film and be very sort of cloak and dagger with it whereas Spielberg had to use a pesky mechanical shot that kept going wrong and created the biggest nightmare of his life so you know life is a little easier and just finally on Jaws as you both pointed out the references are explicit and sustained and loving but I guess the thing that they always used to mention about Jaws was how much do you, you know, the, the great, the sleight of hand of never, of hardly ever seeing the shark until kind of the very end. How much UFO do we see? Again, like I say, I mean, it's, I, it's he's, hidden he's away. He's got a it's, similar kind of yeah, yeah. MO, you don't, hasn't you it? don't see much of it until it sort of really starts kind of flourishing its colours like a peacock, if you like, in the, yeah, in yeah. the last kind of half hour. Yeah. Again, like Jaws had to make the best of its situation because yeah. the thing just wasn't working. So Spielberg was always finding ways to not show it and then realised that that was, in fact, the, the most effective technique anyway, as Hitchcock could have told him. You know, just don't mm. don't, don't show it until you absolutely have to. Yeah. And with this, you know, you see, I, I mentioned the gullet shot. I won't say too much about it, but that's, that's I mean, an, an amazing idea to do that. Many, many a filmmaker would not go up there, I think, and do that. But it works with the themes of the film. It works with the idea of, yeah, we're we're idiots and we're hungry, but something is hungry back in this film, which I yeah. quite like. Yeah, yeah. I think the engagement with Jaws just gives the whole thing a really satisfying structure and a payoff. That was Tim on Jaws. Later, you're going to talk to us about Project Nim. Now, this cuts right to the, that first scene in the film that we were talking about and throughout, I suppose. Yeah, I'm terrified of chimps. I would rather be locked in a room with four tigers with machetes than kind of have an encounter (laughs) with a chimp. It's something I think that kind of around the time that Project Nim was coming out a few years ago, there was a lot of addressing kind of how we looked at animal performers. Blackfish was also at around this time. But also I think we were looking at a lot of things that happened in the 70s around experimentation with animals, which is what Project Nim is about. Mm. A chimp that was essentially, we're going to teach it sign language. And there were other examples like this, Coco the gorilla, for example. And we didn't really teach them language in any meaningful way. We essentially got them to perform and we also tried to humanize them in a way that was completely wrong and we entirely misread our relationships with them so kind of getting into kind of my intense phobia of chimps you must have found this film amazingly frightening yeah well <laughs> in that case from what i understand i don't want to get too dark on this podcast the thing with a chimp is that you know if you've kept it in captivity for its entire life you are essentially driving something mad and they are very intelligent and a bit again like tilikum and blackfish they understand that they are captive they understand that it is your fault and yeah. so when they come for you they come for what matters to you which means generally face genitals and fingers which is like a pure 
a very Hannibal Lecter Same kind of type of you, approach. Tim? Yeah, maybe switch them around. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Project Nim is not actually about a chimp that kind of does anything, you know, too ghastly by the end, but it is a portrait of an animal being driven mad. And what tended to happen to these kind of performing chimps, be it that we're trying to teach them sign language or we were trying to put them in movie shows, the second they enter puberty, they're fine as like little children. The second they are in puberty, this kind of setup won't do. And so they tend to get very violent and then they have very depressing ends of life where they're kind of locked up in little cages and unable to to kind of fulfill any of the promise they once had of like, oh, you're going to be treated like part of the family and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think because of Project Nim, I really saw a lot of tragedy to Gordy. I mean, as much as I am afraid of chimps, I am on their side. <laughs> I don't think you should dress them up and make them be in crap 90s sitcoms um, or anything like that. So yeah, I think that just really enriched the they experience. They don't wear kind of little neckerchiefs and cowboy hats in the wild, do they? It's been proven, they hasn't don't. it, by a number of nature documentaries. That's not true. It is. And we only found this out very recently that chimps don't need t-shirts and nappies no and we should point out that project name is a an amazing documentary by james marsh isn't it? Mm, yeah who went was... on to do theory of everything and he did man on wire which man is another wire, which is fabulous amazing which is yeah. that, actually that wouldn't be a bad companion to the nope as well all about kind of doing ridiculous stuff in pursuit of spectacle yeah yeah <laughs> getting off on stunts yeah. it's amazing and i love how all of these characters including the chimp and including philip petty and, and everyone they're, they're all single Everyone in Nope is single. It's a very great film for single people, right? No one has kind of much interest in getting with anyone in this film. It's just like, we're single, we're going to work together, we're going to do this thing. Yeah, you well, don't even know about the, for... their mother, do you? The... Well, sorry, except for Duke Park's wife. That's true. He, he is. He uh, does have yeah. a wife. She doesn't get she a lot really to do. No. But yeah, he has a sort of a bit of a trophy wife, I guess, in a way. In a way, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I suppose yeah. that kind of child star notoriety might kind of do quite well on tinder (laughs) (laughs) well we've gone fairly meta throughout the program but that i think we that's a perfect place to end it child stars on tinder that's a whole other show do you want to come back and we'll discuss that some other time but thank you both for your your great wit and wisdom on nope which i think we all thoroughly enjoyed maybe not as much as steph (laughs) co-producer of this program thank you leila latif and tim roby thank you very much and that is all we have time for today. Thank you again to my guests, Leila Latif and Tim Roby. Monocolor Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll all be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in.